Matthew chapter 5. By now you guys have woken up, right? And everything's good. Matthew 5. Turn there. First book of the New Testament. Matthew, big number 5. Chapter 5. We'll be there in a second. To catch you up to speed, if you weren't here last week, we're in the middle of a three-week series called Outward Arrows. And uh, the term Outward Arrows is something that Bethel has said for a while, for years. Uh, If you go back about five years, Bethel said, you know, everyone's coming from around the region into Crown Point to worship, all these arrows pointing to Crown Point. But we want to see people go out and be worshiping in their communities. And so the multi-site started where Cedar Lake, Bethel Cedar Lake, Bethel Gary, Bethel Hobart Portage, and all of this has happened. And so as a collective body, we've become outward arrows that are out in our region. So right now, currently, at four different places, Bethel is preaching the word and people are gathering and fellowshipping and that's a pretty awesome thing. But one of the burdens on my heart is to see that happen personally for us as well. Not just corporately, but that we as God's people, as we come together Sunday mornings, would worship together in passion, would enjoy the fellowship of talking to one another, but then we would go from here and be the body of Christ, be outward arrows in our community. And so we're doing this series. Last week, we looked at Psalm 96, a great missional psalm from the Old Testament, where we see the, the missionary heart of God. You can go back and read that. If you weren't here, you can also listen to the sermon online. Last week, we kind of talked about the why. Why be a missionary? Why go out and be an outward arrow? And we saw the answer to that was the glory of God, because God is so great that we can't remain silent. We must go and tell people. It was our motivation. So that was the why. Today and next week, more of the how. How do we do that? And so this morning, we specifically look at being salt and light. So Matthew chapter 5, read with me verses 13 through 16. Follow along as I read this uh, scripture. Starting in verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is God's word. One of the ways that we've illustrated mission at Bethel is the analogy of these outward arrows. And in Matthew 5, God gives us two other analogies, salt and light. So as we look at this text, something that really stands out is that if we live as salt and light, if we do this, there's going to be some change that happens. It's going to affect the world around us in one way, shape, or form. In fact, there's a chain reaction in Matthew 5, 16. If you look at verse 16, I want you to notice this. We could even call it a change reaction because as we're changed by Christ, as God changes us, he makes us salt and light. And then as salt and light, we start to affect change in our neighborhoods, in our community, in our workplace, in our school. And then This is the change reaction. God is glorified, verse 16. Notice, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So outward arrows produce change. They produce change. Hopefully the people that we come into contact with are changed in some way. The ultimate goal is for them to give glory to our Father God. And of course, that fits in really nicely with last week's sermon as we looked at the truest and purest motivation for mission, which is the glory of God, that we would see God glorified in further places around the world, in in areas of of our country, of our world, where right now he's not being glorified by people, in areas of our own heart where we're not giving ourselves to God. That's our motivation for mission. And so when we look at Matthew chapter five, this is all in order that people may glorify our Father in heaven. So let's look at these two metaphors, all right, that Jesus gives us to help us understand how we affect change in our world. How do we do that? Well, first, you are the salt of the earth. Salt. Now, there are several uses for salt in the, in the ancient world, and you can read all about that. I bet you Harry Beamer could probably tell you 10, right? <laughs> you could use salt for all kinds of things. Uh, they would use it in the covenants that they would uh, establish. They used it in the sacrificial system as um, intended by God in the Old Testament. But the two primary uses for salt were seasoning and preservation. And as I look at this text, I believe the primary 
way in which Jesus is speaking here is seasoning. And I, I believe that because the word that Jesus uses, which the ESV translates, lost its taste. That word, that Greek word, has to do with taste. It has to do with becoming insipid, tasteless. And so I believe the primary use we're going to look at here is seasoning. The mission is to flavor the world in a distinctively different way. That's our mission as Christians, to flavor our world in a distinctively different way. We flavor the world. We reflect the glory of God. We are his image bearers. So wherever we go, as we shop, as we play, as we work, we are reflecting the glory of God. And that is a seasoning into our community. You probably have heard the expression, especially if you're a little bit older, he's the salt of the earth kind of guy. He's just a Probably anyone that's young never heard of that, right? Anyone ever heard of that? Salt of the, okay. Yeah, mostly us that are older. Okay. It means somebody who's down to earth, somebody who's honest, hardworking, decent, dependable. It's a good, it's a good term. I want you to notice though in this text, Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says, you, disciples, believers, you are the salt of the earth. See, as Christians, we're the only ones who can do this. We're the only ones who can be salt. Not just a good person. There's a lot of salt of the earth kind of people out there. Good, hardworking. You know, they might have God, they might not, but they're just good people, quote unquote. But in this text, we're talking about believers. You must have Jesus Christ in you to be salt. You must have Jesus Christ in you to be light. We're unique. And so we should feel a sense of responsibility here. We are the only ones who can accomplish this. And as we'll see in a moment, it's more than just being a nice guy or a nice girl, or a decent person. We're talking about influencing people so that they move from blaspheming God to giving glory to our Father in heaven. And that can only happen if Jesus Christ is in us, working through us. Now, it's not stated specifically in this text, but it's clear from Jesus' words that this flavoring that salt provides is desirable. It's a good taste. It's not a bad taste. It's a good taste, a pleasant taste. You know when you taste something and it just brings a smile to your face? Like, I don't know what that is for you, what your favorite food is. Or for me, it's pizza. You know, I taste some pizza, just a smile automatically comes across my face. Or a good cup of coffee. Um, or jello, which that's kind of random, but I just love jello. I just really love it. I just wanted to put that out there. Or an Albanese gummy. I did this last time and it was like sitting in my mouth for a while. But it just brings a smile to my face. I have some of these in my office. If you want one, come see me. And everyone's going to want counseling now. By the way, known to be the most flavorful gummies in the world. But what is the flavor that we leave? You think about this. As we interact with people, as they walk away from us, is it a favorable flavor? Or is it not so much? Is it sweet? Or is it uh, Is it sour? Think about your neighborhood. How do your neighbors think of you and your family? Do they smile or not so much? <laughs> How about your workplace or school when you're in school? What's the reputation that we have? Now, this is something we have to truly work on. We really do. Keeping a good reputation, trying to be blameless, being a blessing to our neighbors, not a bane. And I know I've learned over the years, you've got to work hard at this, you know, because your leaves go in your neighbor's yard and you have to, like, you have to try really hard to be a good neighbor, to leave a good taste in people's mouths. Are you a blessing or are you a bane on, the, on society? And the more godless our society becomes, the harder we're going to have to work at this. You know, there was a day when Christians were kind of generally respected and admired. Those days are fleeting, Right? Those days are fleeting, and media does not help us very much. Media mocks Christianity, makes us out to be buffoons and fools. And so we're working from a deficit just to begin with. If you talk to somebody who doesn't go to church, their opinion of a Christian is not always favorable. And so we're kind of working from negatives. So we have to work hard at this. And we're going to see next week that you could live a very godly lifestyle. You could be a really salty Christian. And still, some people are going to reject us. You can't control people's opinions of us. You can't control the way that the people respond to us. But you can control how you interact, how you work, how you play, how you live. You can control your saltiness. But whether someone likes salt or not, that's a whole other thing. Some people like salty snacks. Some people like sweet snacks, right? Well, some people are not going to like Christians. I have with me a soda, and I promise this is a soda, okay? It's called Moxie. 
I asked this first service, has anyone ever drank moxie? Raise your hand if you've ever drank moxie. Are you serious? Get out of here. Okay. The last service, the only ones were my family. Um, it says right on here, distinctively different. And if you've ever, if you ever tried moxie, that is true. Distinctively different. It is a unique soda. People usually love it or hate it. It's been described as like a birch beer mixed with like a um, black licorice and molasses. And my wife says throw up, but I don't taste that at all. Um, the thing about moxie is it's aftertaste. You'll, you'll drink it and afterwards you have this unsettling dryness in your mouth. And I think kind of a pleasant taste, but other people not so much. And you know, when you think about the aftertaste that people have when they walk away from conversations with you or walk away from interaction with you, is it, is it a good aftertaste? Is it not a good aftertaste? You know, salt was used for seasoning, but it was also used for preservation. And we don't do this a lot today because we have refrigerators, we have freezers, and so we don't often use salt as a preservative. But one way that we use salt kind of in a preservation way is most of us have water softeners and a lot of us have to take salt we have to pour it into our water softener I just did this the other day pour the big bag of salt in there and uh, and if I don't do that what will happen well my water is so hard that it will corrode things my tub will be like very difficult to clean my dishwasher gets ruined there's all kinds of things that happen and so that salt actually it's a chemical reaction it's kind of neat but it allows my whole house not to get corroded And as Christians, we do act as a preservative. Not only do we season, we preserve this society. So I don't know if you realize this, but if you have the Holy Spirit in you, you are preservative in this world. As you walk around, as you interact with people, we truly keep the world from degrading to the point of complete corrosion and just annihilation. And throughout history, Christians have always served this purpose. Always. I think you could make a case for the fact that the only reason our world has not completely fallen apart is because of God's Holy Spirit in Christians throughout the world. Because many times it was Christians who started hospitals. It was Christians who did this or that. Regardless, though, God preserves our society through us as believers. You ever been in a place where you thought you were the only Christian and then you kind of discover, oh, there's another Christian here at my job or two other Christians Isn't that a neat feeling when you start to realize I'm not the only one? But of course that's only true if said Christians are acting in a preserving way. I was in seventh grade and I was in a public school. First time I was ever in a public school. Only year I went to a public school. I remember walking in those halls and thinking, man, I'm the only Christian here. I'm so scared. And then I found another guy and two, and I had two Christian friends throughout my year. Interesting thing about those guys is they didn't act like Christians at all. I went over to their house. They were the very first ones to show me something on the TV that was very inappropriate. And I look back on that and go, well, you, that, that wasn't salt. And quite frankly, I kind of hid in the background and wasn't very salty myself. But us as Christians, we have to act in a preserving way because we actually preserve the world. But before I was in the pastorate full-time, I, I would work part-time as a pastor and part-time in other jobs like UPS and things like that. I drove one of those big brown trucks. And um, I'll, I'll never forget the way that people treat a pastor when you're working with them, right? Uh, it's, it's so funny. It's like they'll be doing their thing, then they'll let a curse word fly, and they'll go like, oh, sorry, pastor. It's like it's kryptonite. Like, I'm a superhero. It's kryptonite. And they're just like, I'm so sorry. I'm just going to wither if I just said that. And I always found this to be true. They never wanted to say certain things around me. Preachers here. And you know, I know you're not a a pastor, but I'm hoping that you are uniquely different, distinctively different enough that people feel a little bit awkward about being open about their sin. They they feel like, ah, you know, this person goes to church or they're a Christian. I better be careful what I say. And I was never self-righteous about it. I never said, I demand you stop using that language around me. I will be defiled. I never said anything like that. I just interacted with people. When they would say that, I'd be like, man, there's bigger problems. Like I, I, wouldn't, I wasn't going to jump on that. Um, and that was just part of me wanting to absorb that to be light to them and salt. Um, I understand people that take a stand, but they just felt weird. And so hopefully as Christians, we are distinctively different enough that people notice. They notice. Somebody shared with me after the first service. He said, you know, I... Uh, one day at work, I got really upset. I was like really mad and I let a curse word fly. And somebody put their head around the cubicle and said, hey, you don't talk like that. 
And I said, what a good opportunity to be able to follow that up with, you know what, I'm a sinner too and I mess up. And I, and I know that God isn't honored with that. You know, I'm sorry about that. Don't think because you mess up you can never be a testimony. But that's interesting. They noticed that he was different, right? Are you a preservative? And one of the best ways I, I really believe we can be a preservative is through prayer. Do you pray for your coworkers? Do you pray for your neighbors? Do you pray for the unbelievers around you that do not know Jesus Christ? My mind goes back to Moses, and I think about the way that Moses interceded for the Israelites. Remember this? The Israelites were wicked. They were idolatrous. They didn't love Yahweh, and God is like, I'm going I'm to wipe them out. And Moses goes before God and says, God, please spare them. For the glory of your name, please spare them. And what does God do? God spares them. We could be doing that as believers. We could be praying for people and saying, God, I know that they don't live according to your, your word, but would you spare them? Would you save them? Would you allow the gospel to penetrate their hearts? Take a walk around your neighborhood. Pray for those people. Go in early to work. Pray and look at the spots where people sit or whatever, wherever you work. Be a preservative. This is something that no one sees, but you could be doing. And maybe you're the only believer in your family. We might have somebody like that here. I don't know. Maybe you're the only believer. You're a parent or maybe you're a child or your extended family. You're the only Christian. You know what? You are preservative in your family. The scripture actually talks about um, unbelieving spouses. It says a wife who is godly preserves her family. That's interesting. It's as if she has this kind of uh, effect on the rest of her family. If for no other reason than prevents God's wrath from being poured right right then on them. So we do that. We're preservatives. And we flavor our family with this distinct taste of the gospel. Let's move on to the second analogy here. So we are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. And then secondly, you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. The mission here is to brighten our world with hope and direction. Brighten our world with hope and direction. Now, I previously emphasized you, right? You Christians, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. I want to emphasize a second word here. You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. In other words, it's not an option. It's not like, you know, if, if you want to think about trying to be light, that would be really cool. Go out and do that. But Jesus said, looks at his disciples and he says, you are right now the salt of the earth. You are, right this very moment, light. On this soda, this moxie soda, it says on the cap, if you have moxie, you have taste. That's another slogan that they have. And that is true. Anytime you taste one of these, yeah, there's a lot of taste. You know what to expect with a moxie. Now everyone wants to try it, right? <laughs> that one's been sitting for a while. You don't want to drink that one. But if you are a Christian, you have taste. If you are a Christian, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. The moment that we're changed by Christ, the Holy Spirit enters us. And now we have something. By our very identity, we are light. We are salt. It's true. What does it mean that we are the light of the world? This light is not simply a warm, positive energy that flows through you to other people like Bob Ross painting. You know, if you've ever seen Bob Ross, big hair painting, you know, happy trees and, you know, we don't make mistakes, just happy accidents, he would say. It's, it's more than just a peaceful, easy feeling that we give off to people. It's more than an aura there's a lot of people out there that believe in like new age type, the universe, and just let's be loving to one another. This is more than that. Being the light of the world is far more specific than that. And we get a clue in 2 Corinthians 4 of what this is. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I encourage you to read this text later. 2 Corinthians 4 is in the context of sharing the gospel with those in darkness. And as we share the gospel, it's a light that breaks through. It, it's, it's a really neat passage because God is, is comparing this to creation, right? That very first, those very first verses of Scripture where it says, let there be light. And just as God created this earth by shining light into darkness, He creates life in our hearts when He when he, gives, when he sends Jesus Christ, when he sends his Holy Spirit into us. And so as we share the light with other people, it's more than just an aura. We're talking about the gospel. We're talking about the revelation of Jesus Christ shown into hearts. We're called to be gospel beacons who bring rescue, like a lighthouse. 
We were on Navy Pier for the first time this past week. Got a chance to walk around that place and check it out. And there's a lighthouse just off the, off the pier there. Many of you have seen that lighthouse. Neat looking. There's a lot of lighthouses around Lake Michigan, right? And these lighthouses stand there and they, and they shine lights. And what they do is, they, is they, they basically warn people in boats. Be careful. Be careful of destruction. Watch out where you're going. Here, here's, you know, here's the coast, and as Christians, this light that we shine off is very much a beacon that says, beware. If you don't submit to Jesus Christ, this is the end. This is your end. It's, it's very clearly the gospel. We have to be sharing the gospel. And the only reason that we're light is because Jesus is in us. What did Jesus say in the book of John? He says, I am the light of the world, right? Jesus is the light. We're mere reflectors who shine the light. If you go into a lighthouse, at least the old-fashioned ones, I don't know how it works today, but you know, the lighthouse has mirrors and lenses that magnify that light so that it, it shines for miles. And that's really what we do. We're mirroring Jesus' light. We are, we are a lens that Jesus' light shines through. And the only reason people see any light in us is because of Jesus' light. Now, light and darkness are very frequent themes in Scripture. We could probably read hundreds of Scriptures that talk about light and darkness. And in every case, light equals righteousness, darkness equals sin. In fact, it's not just a biblical thing. Everywhere you turn, I mean, even Star Wars, you have the dark side, right? And with ev- without a, a possible exception that I can think of other than maybe witchcraft, light is good and dark is bad, right? Light is always righteousness, darkness is always sin. And we understand this idea of light being good. Verse 15 of our text gives us a very practical illustration. You know, in a house, you know, when you have a light, you don't hide the light. You don't put a nightlight in the wall and then hang a blanket over it. It doesn't make any sense. You don't, you know, burn a lamp and then cover it over, as the Scripture says. That would really defeat the purpose. Light is meant to shine the way, to protect us. You know at night when you're turning off the lights and you're, you know, checking everything and that whole routine, you kind of you leave the light where you need it, and then you gradually turn it off. You don't turn the light off at the top of the stairs and then just kind of chance it going down. It's designed to preserve us. I, have you ever gotten hurt walking in the darkness? I mean, almost all of us could probably share some kind of battle story of not seeing something, running into it. I have some doozies. I'll spare you. But light is meant to preserve us, to shine the way, to show us where to go. And as Christians, we provide clarity We shine the way so that people know where to go, how life is meant to be lived. What's the purpose for living? There's a lot of people living in darkness right now. Now, it doesn't seem like it. You look at their life, they seem like they're doing pretty well, you know, but in their heart, in their soul, they're trying to find some kind of meaning. Why why am I here? What is the purpose? They're uncertain if they'll ever find it, and we're called to shed light on that. We're called to provide purpose for living. Now, because we're light, we also expose the darkness. So this is where it starts to get a little uncomfortable with darkness, with people that are in the world. Yes, we shine the light for them, but as that light shines, it also exposes some of the darkness. Ephesians 5, verse 8 and following says, For at one time you, that's Christians, you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. Now, as we live as light, as Christians, it is going to expose the darkness. But this should be considered a good thing. If you had cancer, some of you probably have had this, You don't know it's there until the doctor finds it, until it's revealed, until it's brought to light. And until it's brought to light, it cannot be dealt with. It cannot be uh, remedied. It can't be treated. And so it is good that we would bring to light sin. People do not know that they're lost. Now, some people know they're lost. They, they, They really feel it. They're in a situation in life where they just, they know they need help. But many people today don't think they're lost. They think that everything's fine, you know, just kind of doing the best I can in life. And yeah, hopefully it's all going to shake out okay after this. I don't know. We need to be that light that reveals the darkness, that actually shines onto their life and they see sin for what it is. The uh, ancient philosopher Plato 
had this really interesting analogy that he came up with. And it has to do with philosophy, um, and, and it's a little weird, actually. And I don't know, maybe philosophers have nothing better to do than sit around and come up with weird stuff. But Plato had this little analogy. It was called Plato's Cave. And in this analogy, what he said was, and you have to picture this in your mind's eye, but he said there was a cave, all right? And there was these prisoners. They were chained to a wall. In fact, they were there from birth. They'd never been anywhere else except in this cave, born in the cave, and from very early ages, chained to a wall, facing a wall. So they're facing the wall of the cave. Behind them is a wall that comes up just over their head. And there's a giant fire in the middle of the cave. And for whatever reason, the captors are um, playing like puppet shows. They're, they're taking little cut-out people and buildings, and they're doing like a little show so that the people in the cave, all they can see are the, are the shadows on the wall. That's all they've ever seen. They've never been able to look over the wall. They've only seen shadows of, of things. And one day, one of them breaks out of that. Somehow they break their bonds. They make their way out of the cave, and they hit real light. For the very first time, daylight hits their eyes. Of course, it's blinding. They work through that, and eventually they start to see reality. This is what things, these are what thi- this is what things really look like. And once that happens, they realize, I need to go back, and I need to tell other people. I need to go back and get those other prisoners and bring them out of the cave. And so they work their way back in the cave, and in so doing, their eyes are affected again by the darkness. They get in there. They look. They're lost because they can't see. And the people sitting there chained don't even want to leave because that's all they've ever known. Now, Plato was referring to philosophy and, you know, enlightenment and all that stuff. But what, what he didn't realize is he was writing a very good illustration for the gospel, right? People are living in darkness, and all they know are simply shadows of what real life is. Yeah, they're experiencing some pleasure. They're experiencing some of the goodness in life. It's merely a shadow. They're not able to to understand life the way that it was truly meant to be lived in the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So those of us who have escaped those bonds, who have walked out into the light, yeah, it's a painful experience as we come to conversion, as we submit to the Savior. But once we do, we find it to be very enlightening. And then we want to go back and we want to get people who are still chained, who are living in the shadows, and bring them out. Do we have compassion for those that are still there that don't understand what real light is, what real life is? You've ever had an unbeliever ask you a question because they know that you're a Christian and they know you know the Bible and they say, hey, can I ask you a question about this? Or maybe they know you're a churchgoer and they say, hey, I have a question about marriage. I'm struggling. You ever had that happen? People ask you a question because they know you know this and they think, well, maybe there's some answers in there. I don't know. I need some help in my life. That's them desiring the light. They, they desire to know more about Christ. Now, the world's only going to do that. They're only going to come to us and ask those questions if we live in a gracious way, if we live as salt and light, if our light is one of goodness and not one of self-righteousness. You know, because there's some Christians out there and they shine their light really bright and they make sure everyone knows, hey, I'm light, you're darkness. Let me shine this light on you almost in a hurtful way. I think of the little boy who, you know, the sun's coming through his magnifying glass and he's burning the ants, you know. It's like, yeah, little suckers, you know. I'm, I'm light, you're darkness. There's Christians out there like that, right? They're very vocal. They're very, very loud. No one's going to come ask them questions about the Bible. No one's going to ask them probing questions about God. So we have to live as, as salt and as light. There should be something inside of us that draws people to some degree. They, they may not agree with us and what we believe, but they just walk away from interactions going, you know, I kind of want to talk to that person again. I have here my Coleman lantern. This thing is legit. It's pretty old. I don't know. I think, it, I think it's as old as I am. And I got this, and I use it whenever I camp. Um, love to start this thing up. Really, any of you who've ever used it, you know how bright these things can be. They're really, really cool. These little filaments and all that good stuff. Uh, but when you hang this up at your campsite, you know, what happens with the moths and the bugs and stuff? They start to just be drawn to the flame. You know, they're just coming and as something should be like that with us as Christians. People should want to be around us. Now, the analogy breaks down because once the moths get there, it's, it's a pretty terrible demise. And that's not what we want for people. <clears throat> but there should be a drawing. There should be some kind of attraction. How do I know that? Well, look at Jesus Christ. Look at Jesus Christ. Did he not draw people? And, and let's, let's be honest. It's people who were in the most desperate situation, who were in darkness, who knew they were lost, who were desperate for light. They came to Jesus. 
Not the self-righteous people, but the people who really needed him. But they came. They weren't turned away. One of the things I want you to see from verse 13 and 14 is the word you. That word you is plural. I think this is significant. Jesus is talking to his disciples, plural. He's saying, you disciples, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. It's plural. Us together, we as the church are the light. We as the church are the salt. We may only be a flashlight by ourselves, but together we're much more. May only be one light by yourself, but together we're a city set on a hill, as he says. Picture a city up on a hill. All those little lights, they all represent individual houses, individual people. And that's what the church is. That's what the body of Christ is. That's what, you know, it's kind of cool. That's what Bethel Church is. We're in different places, and not just Bethel Church. The church, capital T, the universal church, is out there shining the light of the gospel, a city set on the hill. That's empowering to know that you're not by yourself. We here together are the church. And then we go out there, yes, we scatter, and we bring the light of Christ to everyone else. So as the church, we're called to season and to brighten. What does this look like practically? What does it really look like to be salt? What does it really look like to be light? Two things. It requires proximity and purity. Proximity, meaning you have to get close to people. You have to be within proximity to affect change. Light only affects the darkness around it. You know, the Chicago Harbor lighthouse off of Navy Pier only affects the darkness in Chicago Harbor. It does nothing for those sailing off the coast of Maine because the light needs to go to the darkness. When you think about it, our task is more difficult and much more exciting than even a lighthouse because we're mobile. We're a mobile lighthouse that wherever we go, we are that light. So if we go to the other side of the world or we go to the other side of the neighborhood, we are continuing to take that light. And whatever darkness we go into, we shine that light. When we go into dark places, we pierce the darkness. But let's be honest, it's kind of scary to go in the darkness. Even as an adult, we get scared of the dark sometimes. My kids are often scared of the dark. Um, Even I get scared of the dark sometimes, I'll be honest. You're in like a strange building and you hear noises. You know, we have to go into the darkness, into the places of our society where it's clearly dark. There's no question Christ is needed. And when we enter those places, the lighthouse goes with us. Think of salt. Salt, by its very nature, has to be close to food to work. In fact, it needs to be touching the food. It needs to be kind of worked into the food. I know Pastor Steve has used the illustration of he's had a salt shaker and he's held it up. And he he said, you know, salt in this salt shaker is really happy. Like everyone's in church. All the salt loves each other. It's salty. Everyone loves it. And then as you start to pour out the salt and it's going out of its comfort zone onto the food, it's crying out, no, I don't want to go. And that's a great illustration, right? Because it's when we go and we make contact with the world that it gets difficult. In here, it's pretty salty. It's, it's pretty nice. When we go out there and we're rubbing shoulders with people that are godless, when we're interacting with people who are dark, it's difficult. Some of us really struggle with that. We struggle to be around people like that. If you look at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, which is, we're in Matthew 5, we're in the middle here of the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus preached. And if you look at the first you know, 12 verses, you could maybe walk away with a misunderstanding, like we're called to a cloistered, segregated community, right? We're the, we're the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, the persecuted. It's kind of like, here we are, here's the world. But I love how when you come into verse 13 through 16, what we read prevents us from swinging to that unbiblical extreme. We realize, yeah, we're the meek of the earth, but we're also called to be salt and light around other people. In fact, we're to be visible, not to fall back into our own little area. We're to be very visible like a city set on a hill, that conspicuous. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, if you get a chance to read Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and hey, everyone has a chance to read it, just go get it and read it. But he's awesome. His writings are very challenging, uh, written in the time of uh, World War II and um, a pastor and theologian, he said this, Discipleship is as visible as light in the night, as a mountain in the flatlands. To flee into invisibility is to deny the call. Any community of Jesus which wants to be invisible is no longer a community that follows him. Now keep in mind, he's writing this when the church is under persecution from Hitler, and that's a bold thing to say, right? 
He's saying you can't flee into invisibility. We are to be visible. We are lights. So the danger is hiding our light. That's the danger. Think about the irony of a lamp under a bowl. You light the lamp, and then you put a bowl over it, in which the oxygen is going to be sucked out, so it's going to go out. And even if it stays lit, you can't see it. What's the point? It's kind of like taking your car, going home, taking a bunch of duct tape and duct taping over your headlights. Good call. That's going to work out really well, right? Just duct taping those things so that no light escapes and then you drive away. Very ironic, very strange. And Jesus is saying, this doesn't make sense if we do this. Some of us haven't purposefully gone about hiding our light. and We haven't taped duct tape over that light, but we find ourselves, depending on where we are, turning it on and off like a light switch. You know, yeah, I'm I'm a light for Jesus, and I turn it off, and I turn it on, and I turn it off. And in here, it's pretty easy to turn it on, and then we go out there in the darkness, it's kind of hard, and we turn it off. And the crazy thing about that is the place that really needs it is the darkness. Uh, we have a lot of light here. I mean, shine your light here, but out there in the darkness is where it's needed, and yet we tend to struggle with that the most. You ever been to a Christian concert or a conference or something, and they had everyone take out their cell phones, turn on the LED light, and everyone shines it together? It's not just Christian concerts. They do this all over the place. Of course, it's kind of like old now. But uh, one of the things they do and they make a point is everyone, everyone holds that light up and then the speaker will say, look at that. That's all of our lights. We're the light of Christ. Now we're all going to go out there and think about how many lights are affecting the world. And that's a pretty awesome picture. If you've ever been a part of that, I think I might even have seen that one time at Promise Keepers. But man, I don't think we had cell phones with lights back then. I don't know. Anyway, everyone has this, this thing and then they all put it in their pocket and they walk out of there, right? And uh, sometimes that's the way we operate. You know, yeah, our lights, and then we put it in our pocket. Uh, somebody might come up and say, oh, hey, dude, you left your uh, flashlight on your phone. It's shining through your pants. It's like, oh, okay. And that's kind of what we're like. We're like, oh, I, I don't want to shine my light out here. That's not what I meant to do. And we're, if we're not careful, that's what we, exactly what we do. We go out there, and we put it in our pocket. We hide our light. We, we don't want people to know because it's difficult. But we have to be within proximity of people shining the light visibly. So that's first. Second, it requires purity. In order to be salt and light, we not only need to be close, visible, in the darkness, we also need purity. So if you were to look at salt in ancient times, it was mixed with various minerals, various impure minerals. And oftentimes, the salt would be stripped from that mixture. And so you'd be left with a saltless salt mix. Today, we... Salt doesn't lose its mixture, that, that component. But back then, it often happened. And if that be the case, Jesus is saying, what is the point? It's supposed to be salt. It's not salty. It's good for nothing. So we're distinctively different in a good way. And if we are distinctively different and we lose that distinction, we lose that difference, then what good are we? We're no different than the rest of the world. We're ineffective. That's the danger here is losing our saltiness. Losing our saltiness Jesus says this phrase, has lost its taste, has become insipid, no longer has flavor, or actually the word is often translated in Scripture, foolish. So that's interesting. Okay, Jesus says, if the salt become foolish, if we as Christians lose our saltiness, not only do we lose our flavor, we're foolish. We're, we're no good as, as, as agents of Jesus Christ. A good parallel word might be tasteless, or you could say a Christian who is not a light, a Christian who is not salt is tasteless. It's inappropriate, it's ineffective. If we live or we try to live missionally without living righteously, without purity, it's ineffective at best, harmful at worst. Again, we talked about this last week, outward arrows first are upward. It's our worship of the Lord. It's, you know, I'm worshiping you, God. I want to glorify you. And so then I go out and I live missionally. But if we just run out missionally and we don't do the hard work of daily surrendering our life to the Lord and saying, I want to be pure, God. I want to be your vessel that you can use. And as we go out there, we're not effective. We're not effective because we're not distinctively different. We don't look any different from anyone else. And then people go, what's the point? Like, why, why become a Christian? I don't, I don't even understand it. We need to issue a clear call for people. As Christians, we can't be confusing. People can't go, I don't even know what a Christian is. What makes you a Christian? It should be clear. They should see, okay, that person seems to be different. They don't seem to do that. They seem to act this way. They seem to have a peace, even though they're going through this incredible difficulty. So we're talking about proximity and purity. 
or another way of saying it, this is a kind of a well-known phrase, in the world, but not of it. Right? In the world, proximity, we're there, we're close, but we're not of it, we're pure, we're not polluted, or we're constantly asking God to cleanse us. How can that be done? Is that tough? Is it tough to be in the world, but not of it? You guys think that's tough? If you're in the world right now, you're saying yes, right? Because it is tough. It's really hard. In fact, we usually stray to one extreme or the other. You know, we have good proximity. Like, we're there. We're in it. But we don't maintain our purity very well. Or we say, I don't want to touch that stuff. Like, I'm a Christian now. And, and we're so far from these worldly people that we, we're not effective. And Jesus is saying, be in the world, but not of it. He's saying, be salt and light. Be touching the darkness. Be touching the world, but don't be like it or you lose all your effectiveness. How can this be done? Only one way, and that's walking very closely to Jesus. Because as you walk close to Jesus, you learn what a disciple is. You learn how to do this. Think about Jesus. Was he not the beautiful example of this? Was he in the world? Yeah, I mean, he became flesh. He came to this earth. He walked with sinners. He, he ministered to, to the leprous, to the prostitutes, to the tax collectors. He got criticized for eating with tax collectors, didn't he? Here was a man who was in the world, rubbing shoulders, being salt, being light, yet never of it. Never did he act in an impure way. So as we walk close to Jesus, we realize, okay, that's what that looks like. So as we study the word, as we pray to the Lord and we ask him to change us day by day, we understand, okay, I can be in the world, but not of it. One thing is for sure, as outward arrows were called to live a certain way, not just vocalize the gospel. I, I, I think if you come to Bethel for any length of time, you're going to hear us tell you we need to speak the gospel. It's not enough to just act a certain way and hope people figure it out. We have to speak the gospel. Yes, we need to vocalize that Jesus died on the cross. We need to tell people that we're sinners. But it's not enough to just vocalize it. Jesus is telling us here, you've got to live a certain way. If you're talking about salt, talking about light, you're talking about affecting change. You're talking about, in fact, Jesus says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. We have to live a certain way. The world has a real hatred for hypocrisy. You know, if you talk to an unchurched person, what's one of the top three things they'll, they'll say? I, I don't go to church because Christians are hypocrites, right? I've seen... A Christian, he was this way, not for me. And let's be honest, there's some doozies out there. There's some Christians who really give Christianity a bad name. And sometimes you wonder if they really have Christ in them. But we have to live a certain way. We can't just get up on a soapbox. We can't just tell people the truth. We, we must do that. But we must live a certain way. It's, it's impossible for, for us to make a difference otherwise. What are good deeds? What are good works? If Jesus says, let people see your good works, what does he mean? Well, if you look back in the first 12 verses of chapter 5, we see a little bit of what he's talking about. Living these beatitudes, being poor in spirit, those who mourn, meek, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, being merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers. And if we live in this way, if we act this way, people are going to notice, people are going to see a difference. And they're going to give glory to our Father in heaven. This is all to point to the glory of God, all to the point to the greatness of God. 1 Peter 2 is a great parallel text here. This is what God's word says in 1 Peter 2. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. That's that purity, right? Which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. If we do good works for our glory, we're no different from the Pharisees that Jesus condemned. If you, in my Bible, if you flip over one page to chapter 6, verse 1, Jesus was saying this. He said to the Pharisees and to those around him, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So these texts kind of balance each other out, right? Don't be doing your stuff so everyone else sees it and glorifies you. But in our text, he says, do let your good works be seen so that they may glorify your Father, so that they may know who you serve. So we have to connect our good works 
with the Father somehow. We have to help people understand, here's why I'm doing what I'm doing. You know, so a simple act of compassion can be tied to the gospel. And you could tell somebody, yeah, I just wanted to help you out because God has saved me from my sins. Jesus died for me. He loved me so much. I just wanted to love you as a neighbor. Literally, you, you stop and help somebody with their car. Or you, you give somebody on the street that's homeless a, a meal or whatever. You can tie that to the Father. You can tie that to the gospel. But that's, that's uh, hard to do because it's much easier to just let people think we're good people. Ah, that guy was so neat. What a, I'm so thankful for that man. What a, what a salt-of-the-earth guy. No, we're talking about connecting it to the Father so that somebody goes, well, he must serve a good God. He must serve a loving God if that's the way he acts. Beware of a social gospel. What is a social gospel? That means just helping enact change physically and never getting to the actual gospel of Jesus Christ dying on the cross. We always need to be aware of that. We always want to speak the gospel and act the gospel. Tell people why we do what we do. But I don't know about you, but those are the moments that are nerve-wracking. It's not that hard to grant somebody. Like, let's just say you're on the street. You're in Chicago. Somebody's needy. You hand them a sandwich. That feels good to do, right? You're like, oh, that was so hard to do. No, we can bless somebody. Everyone wants to bless somebody. But then it's the point in which we start to talk to them about Jesus that gets uncomfortable. As we start to shine our light a little brighter. When I light this Coleman lantern, every time I light this thing. Everyone, anyone ever lit a Coleman lantern? Every time I light this thing, it's like touch or go. Man. It's like, I light, it's like, every time. In fact, I lose eyebrows every time I light this. I mean, it's so exciting though. I love it. And, uh, and it's kind of like that. You know, we're afraid that if we shine our light too bright, it's going to blow up. It's going to destroy the relationship. It's going to backfire. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be a disaster. And so we're kind of timid and we're scared. And, uh, you know, you can't be timid with this thing. You just got to go for it. And with sharing your faith, with connecting the gospel to our life, we have to be brave. We have to be able to say to people, you know what? It's because I love Jesus. That's why, that's why we helped you out. Give you a couple practical ways to be missional as we close here. Here's some, just some categories, some things. And as I read through this list, it's in the spirit of this quote by Jonathan Dodson, which says, missional is not an event we tack onto our already busy lives. It is our life. Great quote. So if you're sitting here going, man, I don't have time to be missional. Like I'm just working my job. I'm providing for my family. I'm doing this or that. You're missing the point. We're not saying add it to your list. Go out and, and be missional. I mean, there's a place for street preaching and all that stuff. But I'm talking about you're already doing these things. Just try to be missional as you do them. So here's a couple examples. Number one, eat with non-Christians. Right? So you have to eat at least a couple times a day or you're going to die. So find some non-Christians, eat with them. Say, come on over to our house for dinner or at lunch, at work, grab somebody and say, hey, why don't we eat lunch together? You're already doing it. What a great time to chat, to talk about the Lord. Two, walk instead of drive. You could maybe walk a path that you normally drive and it might take a little more time, but you know you're going to talk to people. And that's hard, right? Because you're like, I don't have time. I got to get to work. Well, maybe you can figure it out. Walk to the store, do this or that. Three, be a regular. Go to the same places. Have a routine. And when you do that, you're going to see some of the same people. You're going to see that guy at Starbucks always working as his office and being really loud on the phone, conference calls and stuff. You're going to see those same people every time you go to the same places. Hobby with non-Christians. Right? Whatever you like to do, find non-Christians and do it with them. Whether it's wakeboarding or golfing or whatever. Talk to your coworkers. Now, that seems really simple, but <laughs> it's, it's easy to like not, just not want to talk to people. I mean, I, I choose the check myself outline in the grocery store for a reason, you know, because it's fast, it's efficient, and I'm not going to make any mistakes. Well, but try talking with people. Try, you know, actually engaging. Six, participate in city events. Get involved in your community. Seven, serve your neighbors. Look for opportunities to serve your neighbors. Maybe they just had a baby. Maybe they had a crisis you know about. Bless them. Find a way to do that. Missional is not an event we tack onto our already busy lives. It is our life. So my challenge for you really is this, to go home, to ponder this, to maybe discuss as a family, hey, how can we be salt and light? What do we already do? And this is, I mean, kids, teens can do this. If you play soccer on a team, boom, there's a natural group of people. It's hard, though, to talk to that group of people that you hang out with that are also your peers and your friends. Your job, the places that you vacation, whatever. Think about that as a family. Get creative. I would love to hear stories. Tell me about what you come up with. Um, Last thing I'll say before I'm done is I have a big stack of these out on the 
on a table out in the commons. Yep, somebody already got one. Okay, so Mark has one there. So some, a lot, some of you look at this and you know exactly what it is because you've been here long enough that you recognize it. It's a little outdated now. But Bethel had this whole initiative where it was called Salt and Light. And the initiative was this. Let's study our region. Let's figure out what our region needs. What are the different things that plague Northwest Indiana? How can we as a church, and not just Bethel, but the church, how can we all enact change in our community? So if you, excuse me, read through this, there's a lot of really great ideas. Ways to pray, uh, ways to get involved with organizations. And while maybe not all the information is up to date, it is an awesome tool to just put on your coffee table, to take home with your family and very tangibly start this conversation. How do we be salt and light? How do we enact change? Because we are called to make a difference. And so I, I want to challenge you with that. Do that. Go home with one of those. If we run out, I got plenty more. I found a secret vault in Crown Point with tons of them, okay? You want more, you let me know. I'll get them. Uh, but let's think about this. Let's, let's really pray about, how, God, how can we be salt and light in our neighborhood? Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus Christ. God, we need him so desperately. We need you. We need you and your power, God, to be salt and light because we struggle with this. God, all of us do. None of us, pastors, people in the congregation, we all get uneasy when we're around the darkness. We get uneasy when we're around unbelievers, and it's very easy for us to shy away from being salt and light. God, may we be clear with the call of the gospel, but we, may we also be winsome. Maybe we be gentle. May we be compassionate. May people walk away from conversations with us. May they walk away from interactions with us, God, and they say, man, who's that Who's that God that they serve? I need to find more out about that. May they be drawn to the scriptures through our life. God, I pray that you would use us greatly. This campus here in Cedar Lake and the surrounding areas, Bethel as a church, the church at large, Lord, would you allow us to see real change happen in Northwest Indiana, God? People change from darkness to light. People who are currently blaspheming God, who will glorify our Father in heaven. Lord, we are the church. We are the light. We are the salt. God, you're commissioning us, and I pray that we would go with bravery, with courage, Lord, and with trust in you, because we need you. In Jesus' name, amen.